0: Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Bearden Jarvis and I'm your host. And I am really, truly delighted to be sitting here with Mark Chestnut, who is an author, a travel writer, and his book is publishing mid-July. And he's gonna tell us all about it and how it's available for pre-order right now. Folks who are listening to the episode know that I buy multiple copies of folks who are on my podcast. So if you can't afford it or can't find it, let me know. And as soon as it comes out, I'll get it to you. I have a couple of copies. Mark, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Megan. I'm really excited. And this is the first podcast interview I'm doing since my book is about to come out. So I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Well, we are really, really lucky to have you. Can you, can you tell our folks sort of what brings you into the world of grief and loss and and maybe how that connects to the writing that you've done about that and your book, Prepare for Departure, which is about to come out.
1: Well, you know, I think the book actually started out not as some big dream that, oh, I want to publish a book. The book actually happened naturally because it was really part of my own personal grieving process. and. Yeah. I started writing not because I would I thought I'm going to make a book about this. I started writing because I was dealing preemptively with the grief that as my mother was going downhill before she passed away and it was just this natural thing I needed to deal with the situation, the complicated situation, the sadness, the strong emotions and you know seeing my mother as she was and you know grappling with what may happen in the future. And so I just I would come home and I would, from the nursing home where she was, and I would start writing everything down. And I wasn't, you know, writing literature or, you know, trying to make this beautiful writing. It was just, I felt like I have to deal with this somehow. And so for me, I guess, because I already was a, you know, I was already a travel writer. So I was already, already used to sitting in front of a keyboard. And so I would just jot everything down and I would jot down a lot of things that she said, you know, I just felt like it was, psychological for me, like a psychological aid to me to just document everything and have it there for me.
0: Let me ask a question about this. I, I, because I had a similar experience after my mom died, I started writing and, and even though I'm, I spend some time with published writers now, I often feel a little sheepish because what I hear is like, oh, I've always wanted to be a writer. I've been writing my whole life. I always wanted to write a memoir. I always write, I've always written you know, when something is emotionally significant to me. And that is not true of me. I also wrote because the situation sort of required it of me. So can you, I mean, I have my own answer to this question, but, but what was the relief in getting the words out for you? Was it making sense of what was going on? Was it recording it so that you knew you didn't have to keep thinking of it? Was it just, you know, like a shedding of the experience? I'm just curious, any, or anything else, what was the process for you?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think maybe it was a little bit of all of that. Part of it was, I just felt, you know, any anyone, any of us who've gone through losing a parent or any loved one knows it is such a grueling and horrible experience. It's just, it's too much to bear, you know, it's too much to keep inside in some ways. And so- you know part of it so I needed to release it and so writing it down, I think it was really maybe two things and one way it was that that like I needed to write down how horrible it was yeah. to like so so that it would be on paper or well on my screen and it would but it wouldn't just be hanging on so heavily in my mind even though it did still hang there. Yeah. and I also obviously relied on, on my husband as well because he was provided a lot of emotional support so that was critical too but it wasn't enough. And so I needed to document it. The other reason why I think I started writing is because, like, you know, I was so afraid, I was dreading losing my mother. And in a way, I knew that this this may be our final weeks together, our final months together. And so even if if it was not the most fun experiences that we're having that point it I knew this may be our final the final things we go together go through together so by documenting it I didn't want to lose or forget what what we've gone through and so it was a way of kind of capturing that point in time and the memories of what we were going through together even though obviously yeah they weren't they weren't the most pleasant things towards towards the end but I just felt like I didn't want to lose that. And also, but at the same time, I needed to relieve myself a little bit by venting it out onto my computer screen, I guess.
0: I love that answer. I think it reminds us that grieving is a natural process and our body has its own instincts about what to do with it. And one of the things I'm thinking about clinically is often what I hear from folks when they've gone through a loss whether it's a traumatic loss, you know, a sudden loss that's traumatic and their system is confused by it or one that's more like what you had with your mom and I had with my dad, which is we're anticipating it, we're grieving it kind of as it's happening because they're actively dying in a diagnosis. I think I think sometimes what we're doing is we're trying to make sense of it as it's happening, recording it, but also preserving memories, right? So sometimes we're preserving the good memories. Right. We want to we don't want the the moment of seeing someone whose body is no longer well and whose mind is no longer sharp to to occlude all of the other experiences that we had. And in order to do that, sometimes we do have to either write down the good childhood experiences or the positive moments so that they're right there for us to access or we have to put the difficult ones down on paper so that our mind doesn't have to keep turning it over and only put that on the dashboard in front of us and that's all we can remember that certainly happened with my dad i had a therapist point out to me like are you aware that when you talk about your dad you're only talking about that 12 month period of when he died but he was 80 when he died
1: mm-hmm. which means
0: you had seven you know you had your 42 years with him What, you know, can we bring any of that back? And it was such a cracking open and a release to remember him as vibrant and alive and healthy. Would you tell us a bit about, first, I want to ask your
1: mom's name. Oh, sure. It's Eunice Chestnut. She had a very unique name. Oh,
0: that's a great name. Oh, I love it. So could you tell us about your experience with Eunice? I know she raised you alone and I think I think the meat of some of your book is about this, but just sort of, you know, flesh out for us who it is that you loved and lost.
1: Right. Well, yeah. And and it's really interesting what you were saying about when you were uh, talking about your dad and how at first you were focusing on that. It was a 12 month period, I think you said. Yeah. Right. Yeah in a way it was similar with me where at first I was just coming home and I was writing things down or even when I was with her when I was visiting her if she said something that I thought was important you know she had a brain tumor and so she had a lot of memory loss but it wasn't quite the same as Alzheimer's you know she she was a little more with it than simply with Alzheimer's so sometimes she'd say things and I'd be on my cell phone you know tapping out what she just said because I didn't want to lose that but I was so focused on just documenting everything that we were going through. In our case, it was a nine-month nine month period. Okay. As I progressed with that, and you know, I can't remember when it exactly started, if she was still alive or if she'd already passed away, but I started realizing, well, you know what? This was so, that one thing that happened when I was 12 years old and she got mad at me, was, you know, that was really funny now. And like, I don't want to forget, you know, I don't want to forget the, the horrible things that we just went through, but I also, I don't want to forget about these hilarious things That's in the first time. Right. And the funny things she said at her at my grandfather's, at her own father's funeral and stuff like that. So I started expanding really what I was writing. So that's how this book really came into form, where like the it's set in in the some of the chapters are set in what I call the present, which is the last nine months of her life. but first yeah. with these chapters going back to, when my my father died when i was when i was 4 years old so i don't really have much memory with him deals with the first chapter introduces my mother arriving at the nursing home and kind of setting the stage that she's not getting better and she probably will pass away and she actually was ready to pass away mentally herself at that yeah. point but then in the second chapter i jump into how our lives together kind of started in terms of my memories of it right after my father died and how she you know took the helm as you know a single mother a widow and i had a i have a sister but she's quite a bit older than me so she moved okay. away to, to college when i started kindergarten so it was really oh, just wow. me so yes. it was really just a one on one relationship and so with all the good and bad you know difficult aspects of that but it was overall really cool because she was a very cool woman and she was you know, she went She went back and got her undergraduate degree after my father passed away and her graduate degree. And she got a job as a historian at a local historical society. Badass. And, and she did tons of volunteer work. And so she gave back to the community a lot. So she was really like an interesting and, and fun person. And so I've been, and also with a great sense of humor. And she also made sure that I was well-connected with her parents, with my grandparents who lived far away in Kentucky, but we spent tons of time there too. So she really did in many ways, she did a really great job, but then sometimes we, you know, I was a brat and she would lose her temper, whatever. So we have those, those really fun, those, those fun moments. And so the book also documents that too. And also, you know, once I, once I realized that I was gay when I was in my late teens, I document that too, because my mother was born in 1925 into a Southern Baptist family in Louisville, Kentucky. And so she didn't have the, the background of really being super educated about that aspect of my life. And she she got more and more comfortable with it, but never got fully comfortable with discussing it as a topic. She was always wonderful to me and to my husband, but yeah. she wasn't like an outspoken rights advocate, even though she was a liberal and she was educated and all that. So, so I address all of that because she was yeah. like everybody, she's a complex person. We had a great relationship that was complicated in some ways. And so I really, ultimately, what the writing of the book did, even though I didn't know it was going to be a book, was that it helped me to work through the difficulties of the last, the final nine months and how horrible it was and how trying and emotional it was. But also then the other things started coming up. And I think probably you as an expert in this field probably have seen this with other people. At first, maybe we are focused on the most difficult parts of the end of someone's life, but then the other stuff bubbles up. It does. And that's, uh, can be a really nice thing, right?
0: Yeah. Well, the other thing that's striking me as you're talking, I mean, I have such a big smile on my face because your mother sounds like an extraordinary person. And I just love the honesty of, you know, I say the same thing about like, my dad was amazing and he was an asshole. So, which makes people laugh because it's A really accurate definition. And, you know, what I'm struck by is I have five brothers and sisters. And so when I was writing my memoir, I come at it with five other pairs of eyes to make sure that I'm not going to do damage to the truth of a story, partly because I come from a storytelling family. So anything that's historical in memory is probably obscured. It's probably not totally accurate. It's been added to by 5%. And maybe we swapped out to give that character prime, you know, so there's that aspect, but also there's the aspect that I'm not the only person in the story that it's shared by, you know, multiple other people who have different relationships. What I'm so struck by is the sort of sacredness of being the person who is creating the record of the love and the life between you and your mom, you have a sister, but she was a grown-up by the time the two of you were were in this experience together. So I'm curious: did your mom know you were writing, or that or that it might become a book before she died? Was that something that she would have
1: known? She did not know, unfortunately. Although perhaps it's actually fortunately, because a couple of people asked me, you know, oh, how would she feel about this book coming out? And I think in a way, she was actually a writer. She wrote like local history books and things like that. And she actually wrote a couple of novels that that weren't published. So she was creative. You know, I'm basically a writer because of her, I think. I think I got it in my blood from her. And she always made sure I had a typewriter. And she always had one too, because it was before the age of computers. But anyway, so she did not know. And I think in a way, even though she was a writer and creative, I think she was she also pri a private person in some yeah. ways and also she had the the polite southern upbringing where you were supposed to avoid potentially uncomfortable topics so i yeah. think i think honestly she would she would be i may sound like a horrible son she may be kind of embarrassed about certain a- aspects of what's in the book because i do talk about the less comfortable things like my coming out and things like that but i'm going with her with her um, own personal views about death. And so I'm following that because she didn't believe in reincarnation. She didn't think she was going to heaven or anything. And so I don't think that she's anywhere looking down and feeling embarrassed now. So, so I love
0: this answer. I mean, listen, I'm with you. I, people, people who don't know me very well, Yet we'll say, oh, you know, your mother would be so proud. Are you going to dedicate your book to your mom? <laughs> I'm like, oh, she would not be proud. <laughs> in fact, I had a therapist when I was in treatment say to me, I, I think your mother would have thought this was wonderful that, you know, that you loved her so much that it was this impactful. And I, I mean, I burst out laughing. and was like, oh, lady, you do not know my mother. Yeah. She would have been annoyed and offended and upset that she had caused me pain. But, you know, it's sort of a running joke between my sister and I. That this would not have made my mother proud. She, may, she even talking about her on a podcast. I think there's a chance that she would have like not spoken to me for a while, okay. and I'm I'm all right with that. Right, <laughs> I'm right. all right with that because my mother and I tussled a lot in in our lives. You know, the way she would say, "Well, you you have to do it your way," but this is my way, and she was Ooh. very much a she would, she would come back from places and be like, well, you know, that person was talking too much about their business. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, mom, you know? So it's a, it's a different world now, but also I think if we go back to the concept of, of grief narrative, it's your story. Right. it's not to, it's not to throw anyone under the bus it's not to you know make some claim about traumatic parenting or call your mother anything other than loving and i'm right. not here to vilify anyone's parents i have three kids like i'm sure they're going to write terrible books about me one day but but the notion being in order to kind of understand your own experience and to validate your own experience we write it down and the intention wasn't for it to be a book but but again i think we started talking a little bit off mic about this. When people can really garner some of their own strength to go through this horrible process in your words, it makes them, it makes the whole thing more meaningful. That when someone says, thank you for writing this, that was meaningful, that helped me, you know, then it's not just my aged mother died of a brain tumor. It's mm-hmm. we shared this experience in, with some kind of significant humanity.
1: Right. I agree. And I think, yeah. And I think that we all find, we all are, each of us have a story that's, that's unique, but at the same time, we all, you know, we will find that we have things in common with, uh, with other people. And so that's what I found, you know, a few parts of my book have been published in some little literary journals already. And so some people who've read that, you know, it's, it's interesting and it's really nice. I think when people, when you realize like, oh my gosh, other people have gone through this part of of grief or losing somebody or growing up, you know, as a bratty kid with a single mother or whatever. So I think that's nice. I I wanted to ask you though, actually, since you said you have several siblings, so as you're, as you're writing stuff, are they fact-checking or weighing in on it?
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting. So, so in my memoir, I have one story that is the the relevance of the story is to talk about how I become traumatized. And part of the reason I end up with trauma as an adult is that there was a significant childhood death in my childhood and some serious 70s, early 80s, like borderline neglect parenting. A parenting style that would get you absolutely arrested now, not because it was neglectful per se, but -hmm. because we just don't let kids have that level of lenience. And so there is a chapter in my book. For the most part, when I'm writing, I'm just writing, this is my experience. I don't name the names of any of my siblings. I just Mm -hmm. say my brother, my sister, and it's a broad stroke, but in this one chapter, I mean, the story's not great, which is my parents went to Spain when I was 13 and left me in this farmhouse that was miles from anywhere with only my younger brother and sister who were nine and seven to, you know, get them to go to, you know, I have a 13 year old daughter. I look at her and I'm like, oh my God, I wouldn't leave you in the house for more than three hours, but they did. And I was left with them with my brother and sister for a week and it was in the winter and the pipes in our farmhouse
1: burst. Oh my gosh.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty dramatic story. It, it, lives like I could I could film it as a movie my older sister ultimately helped out and was there and I did check it with my siblings I did check and say is this your memory is this my older sister's memory is completely inaccurate nothing about what she says is true it doesn't It doesn't jive with the other two and that is her story in general she doesn't get any details of any family story correct i happen to have a really good memory and that is true of me in therapy people will say like i can't believe you remember the name of my childhood dog Mm -hmm. so i was pretty sure i had the details right when i checked with my brother who was there he was like i literally don't remember what you're talking about i don't remember it happening I remember the story slightly, but I couldn't give you any details. And my youngest sister was too little. So in the chapter, I sort of, I, I, I give myself a little room by saying, this is a faith. This is family folklore,
1: mm-hmm. but
0: this is how I remember it. Right. And, and then for the most part, anything that I'm not sure about, I sort of take a vote amongst The siblings. Now I have one sibling that's not interested in the fact that I'm writing about family stuff. And so I haven't, we haven't communicated about it. It's not, I think it's uncomfortable. Uh, And I think actually that sibling will be surprised when the book comes out to discover there's nothing uncomfortable in the book. It really is. It really is a story about what happened to me, not about bad things that didn't go well in my family. So, yeah. So, so the historical memory of the family is, and I think anyone in big families would tell you that this is the case. It is an untrust, it is not a trustworthy narration. You can't totally trust the narrator. You have to, you have to take it all with a grain or two of salt for sure. Right.
1: And I think that's one reason, you know, sometimes uh, memoir is referred to as creative nonfiction because it is nonfiction, but no one can remember every single word that was said in 1972 between uh, siblings or between a mother and daughter or whatever. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 a it's our best recollection of what happened. But they say, you know, you want to make it emotionally truthful, and so you can set you can make it emotionally extremely accurate, even if if some people might have different versions of the memory.
0: Would your mother have argued content with you? Because I think mine would have, you know, there were like, if we got all my siblings around the table, you know, we have this one story about like, there was a big piece of luggage. We used to zip each other into the suitcase and carry each other up and down the stairs, which again, <laughs> like that sounds like a story of a that ends with the end the child died of suffocation it was like one of those hard Hard suitcases from right, the, the old fashioned the kind.
1: Of oh, I love that. <laughs> right. So
0: just, you know, a horrifying idea. But when we would tell that story in front of my mother, she would say, That never happened. That never ha-. and it's like, well, you weren't there. But she would say, That never happened. I never would have <laughs> let that happen. And we would laugh about it. But would your mother have a differing point of view or think like even, even in your coming out story, would she say, I did an extraordinary job? I was welcoming and you know would there be would there be content argument if you guys were going to talk about it or would there um, be general agreement
1: yeah if she did if she had had the chance to like read through it i don't know that there'd be so much content arguments because i think she was i think she was pretty realistic about like for example her discomfort with my coming out i think yeah. she 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 recognized that it, you know that that she and she may have felt felt bad about it too but yeah, so I don't think so. I mean, in terms of like some of the funny stories kind of like your suitcase story, which yeah. I mean, <laughs> which I which I love. I think she she and I pretty much have the similar memories of of most of that stuff, like the time she told off the Southern Baptist minister at her father's calling hours at the at the wake or or when I put my foot in the cake that she just made for a friend and stuff like oh that. My God. So stuff like that, she loved stuff like that. We laughed a lot. It was and shared. It was a shared. Exactly. So all affair. that stuff, I think she'd be. She, she and I have very similar memories about the the less comfortable stuff. I think she would have. I don't think she would have debate. You know, content. You know, debated the content yeah. of it. I think she would have felt uncomfortable about it. But yeah. again, kind of like what you said before. I didn't write this to be like mommy dearest, you know, like I didn't write it. And, and enough people have read enough parts of the book already that, you know, I was worried about, I want it to be balanced. I want it to be nuanced and detailed. So I want to go through difficult, you know, difficult times and good times. And I don't want her to come out as, as a bad person because she wasn't. And I don't want to come out as a bad person because I don't think I am either. So I think that that's what comes across in general, that it's just like a multi-layered, multifaceted relationship between two people and how they dealt with with a a loss in the past and then pending loss as she was approaching the end of her own life.
0: How how was your conversation or discussion with your mom about your dad dying? I have this sort of like matrix in my mind now at 48 that didn't exist when I was a child, right? And so when I look at how my family and the families around me handled the the death that we experienced when we were children, a teenager who we loved died, I look at it from those child's eyes and think like, God, why didn't they do a better job? And now Mm -hmm. realizing I'm 10 years older than all of those adults were at the time, I think, Jesus, those poor grownups, how did they not all, you know, lose their minds? And, you know, so I'm curious, like, did you and your mom talk about what it was like for her to lose her husband and to raise you? Was that, is that part of-
1: Yes. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. That we did talk about as probably once I was in my late teens, I started bringing up that kind of topic because, yeah. you know, when you're a little kid, you don't care. Like, and I, I didn't, I barely remember my father. So it wasn't like it right. was a topic of conversation. But as I got older, I did get more curious. And so that, which was really nice because, you know, in general, I thought she, I think she handled it really well because, yeah, she was in her 40s when her husband died, like yeah. maybe 44 or something. And she had a daughter who's about to start go away to college, and then I was the surprise child or the accident or whatever you want to call me. So I was just about to start kindergarten. So suddenly she was going from a four person, you know, traditional nuclear family to just herself and me and a daughter off of college. So she, I think she de- dealt with it really well. She is very practical and very economical, and she went back to school, but she was very good about sticking to budgets. And also one thing I appreciated she did for me. And I didn't realize until I got older that she'd done that. And I don't even know if this was intentional, but she never said anything negative about my father until I was in my 20s. Wow. And so all she ever did was if she did mention him, she would point out positive things that I think she hoped I would emulate about him, which I thought was so smart because, yeah. you know, as it turns out, like everybody, my father was not a perfect man. And nice I think
0: human. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I think he was, you know, he was a sexist guy because he was born in 1918. He was, you know, and he he wasn't like exactly into women's equal rights or anything. I
0: can imagine.
1: And so he expected my mother to not talk too much if they went to a party and, you know, stuff like that. But I didn't find out any of that when I was growing up. She would just tell me things like how he was so in favor of the black civil rights movement. And, you know, again, he was so against discrimination and also like you know, it didn't matter if you were the president of the college where he worked or if you were the janitor, he would always go out of his way to say hello to people and ask how their family was doing. Like she would tell me things like that, which was really good because it wouldn't have done if I had, if I were nine years old, I wouldn't know how to process if she said your father is a jerk and he was sexist. Yeah. Right? So later on, she started telling me that part of about that yeah. part of him. But more at, complex. yeah, and by that time I was at an age, I was an adult. So I could understand like, OK, well, that makes sense kind of that he was you know, not the most progressive husband for you because he, of his, where he was born and when he grew up. But I thought that was really good about how she did it. And she, in terms of how she dealt with it later on, I asked her like, you know, how did you deal with this? You were like this 44 year old woman suddenly in charge of everything. And And I said, it must have been a pain because I was like this like hyper little kid and I was a brat as I got older and I was rude to you sometimes. And she said, well, you you know, she said, you just have to do what you have to do. And she kind of left it at that. And later on, when I asked her, what was the hardest death that you dealt with in your life? Because she had lost over the course of decades. She lost her husband first, then she lost her younger brother when he was relatively young in his 40s, I think. And then she lost both of her parents when they were in their 80s. Okay. And I asked, you know, which was the hardest death for you to deal with and she said it was her father, the death of her father. And and I said, "Oh, well, but what about daddy?" And she said she said, "Well, that was difficult," she said, "but honestly, my life got better in some ways after he died." So <laughs> so she was honest and she was funny about it, but after he passed away, she took the initiative to finish her education and create a career path that she loved and she stayed active and she was only in her 40s, she was still young. So So that was how she dealt with deaths in her own family over the course of the years. And I was kind of inspired by that because I Mm like her attitude.
0: One of the things that you're talking about in there, which is so important and, and we've touched on a little bit, is as you're grieving, is to be able to have a relationship with the memory, right? So like we internalize our experience, but when you're four, you're not going to have an internalized experience for very long of someone. And so, which is not to say that you won't experience the loss of a father figure. I mean, that's one of the complicated things for kids is that as they developmentally progress, you know, you can miss, your dad can die at four and you can miss him at your college graduation. You know, there's a grief perspective that goes along about the role and you and I have a lot of admiration for her and it must have been a choice, a decision and an instinct on her part to give you someone to have a positive relationship with, and then wait until you were developmentally sort of ready to hear, oh, by the way, turns out all human are humans. And, you know, your dad wasn't a saint. And in fact, I can see how her life maybe would have been more unfettered by the expectation that she perform a duty as a wife that was from a period of time, you know, that, that maybe wasn't as modern as she was and felt. So I want to ask you about, because again, we talked about this before we started recording. I think there are a a million different experiences that people can have with losing their loved one. And I think part of that is who is the person in relationship to you. It's different losing a child than it is losing a grandparent. And we get really mucked up when people start to sort of compare losses, right? Not possible, shouldn't be done. But I do think there's something to be said about the experience of, I know this person is dying and this person has lived a full life. And you and I both had that experience. My dad had small cell cancer. He was given a diagnosis that meant he you know, understood that he had about a year to live and he lived a year and a week essentially from his diagnosis. Talk a little bit about what that was, how that was hard. You said, I went to the, I went to the nursing home. And so mm-hmm. that, you know, when I think about my dad dying, I think about all the hours in planes and on cars driving mm-hmm. back and forth to be with him as part of the process of grieving him. And it's also one of the ways that I get triggered. Anytime I fly home to Boston, I fly through that gate and I'm like, Oh Jesus, this reminds me of, but how did it show up in your life? Like, did you take the nine months out of your life? Did you still do your travel writing and travel, but come back and spend, you know, did she move in with you? How did, how did you navigate it?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And yeah, and s- since I am a I'm a full time freelance travel writer, you know, it's it is my job to travel. Otherwise, it's it gets it hard. Sounds like
0: manage. a dream job, by the way. That's yeah, that I want to ask about that next.
1: It's not a good way to get rich, believe me. But the benefits are very nice. But yeah, so when she, when she first she was living in Western New York State, about six hours by car from New York City, where I live. And okay. so when she first moved down here, my sister was living in New Jersey at the time. So we decided, you know, she needed to be in a nursing home because we couldn't provide enough care and she was in an assisted living that couldn't provide enough care either anymore. So we decided she needed to move down here to be close to us. And we found a place close to me, which was really great. So when she first moved down, I just, I made the executive decision, like, I I don't care what happens regarding my job, but like, I, I'm not going to travel for at least three months or so because I need to be here to help her get settled in, to help me get settled in. And there's, you know, tons of stuff, as you know, to take care of like paperwork and her yeah. bank accounts and blah 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 so i stopped traveling for a while i kept working and writing because there's a certain amount of travel writing i can do without sure. traveling sure. Um, but eventually i had to start again it was still less travel than i ordinarily do but it was interesting because when she you know when i was here you know i thought about her every minute because i was so worried about her and about what any suffering she might be going through and i felt so bad for her and obviously i was feeling bad for myself too I thought about her every minute of the day, basically, even when I was working. When I traveled and my husband and my sister and some friends encouraged me, they said, you know, you need to travel, It's your, not only is it your job, but you deserve it's. You have to take care of yourself emotionally too. So it's good to get away for a little while. So I would go away for a few days on a work trip and during those times, that time away, in a way it was it did help me to rejuvenate a little bit. I still thought about her every day, but not every single minute because there were distractions and for a while I think it was good to have distractions for a little while. But then when I'd come back, sometimes I felt I felt so emotionally overwhelmed that sometimes I would think like this wasn't even worth you know, the distraction of going away for, for a few days, because I would feel so bad when I came back, you know, so I never fully resolved how to deal with, with either aspect of of the, of travel during that time period.
0: It, that God, that's such a, like a grace-filled answer, which is it's impossible all the ways, right? Like Mm -hmm. I, I think about, you know, every one of us gets on the, on the job grief and loss training, right? When, Mm -hmm. when, somebody has a hard diagnosis or there's a sudden death. And people often say to me, as you did, like, you're a grief expert. Like we are all grief experts. I may have more like actual education around what happens inside the brain and the body from a science perspective or from a treatment perspective. But in terms of understanding, you know, the terrain of grief and loss, you get it. I get it and we can kind of offer to other people what we believe is true knowing their experience might be totally different
1: right but i
0: think what you just described my mother cared for both her father and her mother who who her father had a stroke and her mother was just really old she lived to be 103 wow and she she talked about feeling uh, feeling this sort of time that was suspended and my father always wanted my mom to come on trips with him because he traveled for his work. And she would say the, the exit and the entry is too expensive emotionally. It's too hard to go and come back.
1: Right. That's so a much better though, way to phrase what I, what I was just trying to, to, yeah. To yeah.
0: Even though, and, and well, she probably didn't say emotionally expensive because I think that's my phrase, but, but that's what, that's how she described it. Is it's too much for me to like be a person who sort of what people talk about in COVID, like put on normal clothes and go and mm. have normal conversation when really my mind is in the place of some my one of my beloveds is dying and mm. And so that thing that you just described, which is I never found I never found the right space. In my experience, that's something that people talk about, no matter what, with grief. Which is right. there is no right space because it never gets comfortable because it never stays constant, and nobody wants it to feel this way or be this
1: way. And also, I found that, and I talk about this in the book too. You know how like when you're 16 years old and your boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you, and like every song you hear on the radio is about your your failed relationship it was like when I went away I remember that like I went on a work trip to Columbia and every song that was on the radio or on the streaming or whatever I was like oh my gosh this is about my mother's and my relationship and it was like it was the weirdest thing because I hadn't had that sensation since I was you know 16 or 17 or something and you know I would look like we had a tour guide at one point and I thought that woman has my mother's smile. You know, you see these details or hear these things that trigger yourself emotionally because you know, what's really on your mind all the time.
0: God, you know, that's a, I haven't heard anybody say it quite like that. And in some ways I was talking to rabbi Steve leader, who has a book coming out later this, this month actually. Uh, and, and I was, he was, talking about something with a very positive spin and i was like god you know i'm just so aware that i come in with this with the cynics point of view and i'm struck by that again which is you're sort of saying like hey remember those terrible but sweet bittersweet moments of like puppy love and teenage love where Mm -hmm. you know every song on the radio is about your breakup and about your boyfriend and about your life and we look at that and we smile about that because you're like, yeah, that's what, it. you know, you're so self-centered as a teenager. But right. I, one of the things I've written a bunch about in grief and loss is how unbelievably self-centered I felt during, you know, just the period of time after my mother died. I mean, I have a story. I can't remember if it's in the memoir, or out of the memoir right now, but a story of a neighbor coming over with her her girls and just asking me to watch them the way she has done a thousand times. Like mm-hmm. I need to, and the story was she was running to get her hair cut and she was like, Hey, do you mind if I just like throw my kids in the backyard with your kids? And I don't think I said anything. I came upstairs to my bedroom and, and like stomped around like a toddler. And my husband came up cause I'm sure he could hear me downstairs. And he was like, mm-hmm. what's going on? And I was like, who the hell does she think she is? Dropping her. Doesn't she know? I can't manage. I'm not doing well. And he was like, my husband, God love him. He was like, you know, I think she was probably just thinking about her haircut. I think she was probably just thinking, I'm going to go get my haircut. This isn't a big deal. She can't see how you feel all the time. Like She can't see it and i that was so hard for me because i felt like there was like the cure was playing behind me at all times and that my misery was coming out of my pores and that it was something that that people should be able to identify right away and i didn't want anyone to be able to see it i felt so self-conscious and so when i would do things like this happened all the time and actually it still comes and goes Someone would say like, oh, I'm going home to see my dad for his 86th birthday. And I'd be like, how come you got six more years? I wouldn't say this out loud, but in my head, I would do this math. Like, how come you got your dad for six more years? And I got my dad. Your dad isn't even a nice dad, you know? And I, and then I'd feel shitty and crappy about myself for doing that. But I think that thing that you're describing, which is the way that you feel and your experience follows you, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you're on work travel somewhere else. And right. it's gonna show up in the smile of the tour guide and it's gonna show up in the music on the on the bus. And wherever you are, there you are.
1: Right. Yeah, you can't you can you can go away physically from somewhere, but you can't always escape emotionally, obviously.
0: Yeah. And I do think there's sort of an ebb and flow that we have to be able to have, which is we have to be able to do grief for some of the time and life for some of the time, but it doesn't mean we're not gonna drag a little bit of the sand from one, you know, island whether it's a, a vacation island or a desert, uh, you know, where it's going to it's going to sort of flood into those experiences. I know I have to let you go in a couple of minutes, but I do want to ask you about the travel writing in general. Where did that come into your life? How did, how did you become interested in that? Because I think you have one of those jobs that a lot of people, when you're like, what would you like to be? (laughs) I think there are a lot of people that would say, I'd like to be a travel writer. Because it does does sound
1: good, doesn't it? And honestly, I have to thank my mother for giving me the travel blog in the first place too, because. Since we grew up, well, I grew up, she was already grown up, but we were living in Western New York state, but in a small town between Rochester and Buffalo named Brockport. But my mother, everyone in my family actually was from Kentucky. And so all of our extended family was in Kentucky. And the one, one of the great things that she did was she always made sure that we had a time and budget for, to travel back to Kentucky to see extended family. And so we traveled like at least three times a year, sometimes four times. a year. Wow.
0: That's a lot.
1: Yeah, it was a lot. And we drove most for uh, most of the times, except for Christmas, we'd fly. And so all ever since I don't even remember when I started traveling because it was every year for all of my life. And it was always the most exciting thing that I ever did. You know, it was the thing that I look forward to. And also I was a misfit kid. I was made fun of in school and blah, blah, blah. And so back at, at home, you know, I felt like I didn't fit in. All I had to do was like fly or drive to Kentucky and everybody was nice to me. They'd give me presents. And, and also since I was like the, the surprise kid, I was the young, always the youngest kid around. And baby, so I was spoiled. So I was, <laughs> so I think that's really how I got into travel because it just represented this wonderful and magnificent escape. And then my mother, you know, she always made sure I had a typewriter. She got me into writing. And so writing was one of the few things that I could do decently. And so gradually I kind of steered my career in publishing to the travel writing because I wanted my career and my passion to come together. So, so yeah, a lot of that is really thanks to her. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great career. Like I said, it's, it's not the best, the best paying career I understand.
0: I but understand. Um,
1: it's good. A lot of good opportunities have come about as a result. But
0: what is the most surprising or delightful place that you got to travel to sort of thus far
1: I guess I would say like some of the further off destinations obviously are super special because I don't get to go to them as easily. So, you know, like Egypt and Morocco and cruising the Yangtze River in China have been really great. And also South Africa, which I've visited twice. I absolutely love. Those are some of my favorite places. And then also I've really loved Vietnam. And then closer by, one of my favorite cities in the world is Mexico City, you know, because I love... There's museums and culture and food and, and, and all that kind of good stuff. So every, almost every place I visit, I, I find something different. So like, just like with people, you know, there are good things and bad things yeah, about every sure. place in the world. So it depends on what you're in the mood for, but yeah. Yeah, there's been a lot of really, really great places.
0: Does your husband travel with you when you go? Does, does he get to come?
1: Sometimes, yeah. He has a regular job, you know, like an <laughs> ad agency. he also has a job, shockingly. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's how I can get my health benefits actually. So I love him for that. But yeah. So, yeah, but sometimes he does. He luckily he's been with his with his ad agency for so long, he has a lot of vacation days. So Agreed. he travels with me maybe like 30% of the time, which is pretty good. Yeah. So he loves my job too, because if I can get him into a really nice hotel for free. Then he loves me more than ever. I mean, ever. who
0: wouldn't love that? Right? Who, who wouldn't? <laughs> That's how right. you woo him. Is there a place you wouldn't want to go back to? Is there a place that you know um, you've, you've seen it? That was enough.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's like I have my priorities about places that I would always go back to, and places that if it were a work trip, you know, I would I would go back to almost anywhere. But there, but there are places that I'm less interested in going back to. I mean, in some in some cases, it's related to like laws because you know as a gay man God, there's, still, of there's, there's some countries it's much better now than it was even 20 years ago obviously but there's still some countries where you know just being gay is illegal and so i've been to countries like that and i've never felt threatened or in danger i didn't feel they were going to put me in jail or kill me or anything but just the fact that that's there i don't really like that mindset it doesn't make me comfortable so those might be lower ranking. I'm just,
0: I'm sitting in a, in a, in a moment of which I appreciate, I appreciate your answer. It's the honest answer, but I'm just sitting in a moment of like the privilege of the question that I asked and the way that you answered the question, right? Which is, I'm thinking about like, Oh, maybe you didn't like Germany because of the food and your answer is like, well, there are places that are inherently (laughs) really dangerous for me to go. So I, I, you know, I am always grateful when someone reminds me to learn and think about the sort of global expectations around what jobs mean for other people. So you diplomatically answered that question, but I appreciate the way that you answered it, which is truthful. And I'm glad to hear that your experience 20 years on into the field is that it's better. And I hope that only continues to be true. I'm not sure that we can make each other any promises about that, even among the United States these days, but I'm grateful to hear that. When my mom after my mom died, I did some inpatient treatment because I had really serious PTSD and came out. She died in in 2019. And I came out and then I tried to go back to work for a couple of months, you know, as a trauma therapist sort of crazily, ironically, I also had some small bones grow across the inner canals of my ears. So I felt like the universe was really trying to tell me that listening to other people maybe right now was not the right thing to be doing. So I, we ended up back at her house sort of on our own clearing it out so that it could be sold and so we i did that for a few months and then it became very clear that covid was this very real thing we weren't going back to work we weren't kids weren't going back to school and my kids my husband is english we travel a lot my father worked for an international trade association so any conversation you had with him involved you know when he was in paraguay or portugal he spoke seven different languages So the, the concept of sort of the globe being a place was really, is really known to my kids and my family. And my husband also travels a ton to crazy places like Siberia, but I've never been out West. I've never been at that point further than Texas. And my little kids, my eight-year-old primarily put together a presentation about how we could travel, you know, very safely by renting houses. And spend a couple of months. And they wanted to end up in Kansas at the largest ball of twine, which is not where we ended up. But they put together this proposal and we did it. We got in our SUV and drove across the country to see all the things that we hadn't seen. It you talk about the, the travel and the writing as sort of a legacy that you were infused by by your mom and her passions and your experiences. I think it for me the travel was a little bit like I don't know like those the those funerals those long funerals in New Orleans where they last Mm. for days and you travel to the places that were significant to the people. Right. We I really we spent five four and a half months all over the place just seeing the world because I had really I had grief and loss on the mind and I wanted to see I wanted to see the places and the crazy part was. There was nobody there. So, like when we went to the Grand Canyon, there were only like I, I forget the number, but it was something like ninety six people at the north the that's north brave. rim of the. city. Well, that's of, a nice it way to see. Crazy,
1: it. yeah. And how, and from a from a grief perspective, how did the how did traveling like that affect affect your sense of of dealing with grief?
0: You know, God, such a good question. First of all, I was doing a lot of writing at that mm-hmm. time, and and it, but I really felt like I was on the run. I really felt like if the choice was to sit still back in my house, that was my old life with all my old furniture and all my old clothes, between my parents being gone and COVID, I just was like, that will, that will gaslight me. That will make me feel crazier than I am able to feel. Mm-hmm. So there was something about moving. And I have to say, standing in the Badlands standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, being in Craters of the Moon, felt like places that dinosaurs walked. You know, we were in national parks that were able to talk about the stones from a prehistoric, and for whatever reason, that comforted me. The idea that my little story of my little i mean honestly loss in my mm-hmm. little life it it is intellectually it sounds like it should be well that would be terrible but it was the opposite i felt like dinosaurs walked here this right. is all okay this is this is part of the world you know matter is not destroyed all the energy is still here that was ever here before so the smallness of me you know multiple times we went to dark skies where like in Idaho, where just the number of stars we could see was insane. Mm -hmm. I'd never seen anything like that. And I found that to be maybe just spiritually quietening in a way that I think I craved and felt drawn to, which sort of brings us back to that circle of like, people are innately drawn to Mm heal in ways that, you know, writing is one of them, exercising is, you know, there's a million baking, you can sing, you can do sculpture you can but you are rarely healing without doing something with the energy even if it's sleeping and resting
1: right right but yeah like you said people we all have different ways that we might do it but there are things that we can do or places we can go that kind of help to open up our minds in a different way or help us to deal with things with with grief in a different way right
0: Yeah, because I don't think everybody's going to write a memoir. I don't know that that's a play, even if, even if they are doing some writing, I run a free grief writing workshop and I have people who are writers in there and I have people in there that are just processing through. And, you know, we, you don't have to start a cancer foundation. You don't have to build a giant wall or donate a library, but I do think there is a before and after in profound loss and pretending that you're not significantly changed and impacted doesn't usually work for people. So finding Mm -hmm. something that feels like, wow, I did that or, or I, you know, use that tool. And I, you know, again, I hope everybody who is listening and thinking about writing does do some writing because we need everybody's story. You know, we're, we're working against a world that's been quiet about grief and loss in a way that's been detrimental to us. But, you know, the, 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 each personal story that people give us, gives us that option of saying, oh, me too. I feel understood. I get it.
1: Grief and loss. I think, yeah, sharing stories is so good. And that's why I think that your podcast is so wonderful because yeah, like the more that we all share our own stories, it helps, it helps ourselves. It helps other people. We all have something to share. And yeah, even if, even if someone's not a professional writer, but they just feel drawn to jot down their feelings I, even if no one ever else ever sees it or just a, a couple of close friends or family members, mm. I think it's still a great thing.
0: Tell us before you go, because again, I want to be respectful of your time. I would love to know I asked most of my guests this question was there was there something that any one person did for you that was surprisingly meaningful in your grief? something they said, something they did, something they offered that really touched you. Because I think there are a lot of people listening out there who feel like, oh, it's awkward. I don't know what to do. And I always like to give examples so that people can just, hey, listen, one person one time said this was helpful.
1: Right. That's a really good question. Nobody's asked me that before. I think I would have to say my my husband, some of the things that he said were so helpful and so thoughtful that it really helped me get through certain aspects of the grief, like, for example, when we went up, we had my mother's, it wasn't exactly a funeral, but it was like a memorial service in, yeah. in my hometown in, in Western New York State in Brockport, and so we, I flew up there with Angel, with my husband, and then my sister and her husband, and my sister's son, and his wife, we all flew up there, and met up there, had a wonderful ceremony, and I was, obviously, it was very emotional, and I said to Angel, you know, we don't have any other family left in in that town, and so I said to Angel on the last day, you know, like, I know that, I know there's a good chance we may never, ever come back to my hometown again, because there's no reason to, in terms of his own yeah. family, but it can just, you know, can you pretend like we might have a reason to go to come and visit again? Because I don't, I'm not in emotionally ready to say, well, this is the last time I'm ever going to be in the Too town. Too much to lose
0: it. all at once. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so he said, and he said, like, he jumped all over it and said, well, of course I'll come back here. This is a fun, you know, Rochester's a fun city. Brockport's a beautiful town. You know, we can come back up here for, you know, for like long weekends or vacations. You know, he's there. There's always reasons to come up here. There's events and stuff like that. So he didn't just like humor me, but he got enthusiastic in his support. And that just made me feel so good because, you know, I was, and it turns out we have been back since then. Oh, I really love nice. that. God, and, that's and gonna,
0: such a good example.
1: Yeah. Just, I think just having loved ones around who can, you know, know when to, when to say the right comforting thing and with enthusiasm. And even if I myself knew that it might not be true, but it turned out being true, we did go back and we were going back again this fall to promote the book. But I think just having loved ones around, whether they're friends or family is so important. Right. And for them to to almost like humor us sometimes when we need to be humored, you know?
0: Yeah. But even in that example, it wasn't humor. I I think I described that as sort of like, I don't know, picking up what you're putting down, like taking your lead, which... Mm. I have a, I have somebody writes to me on my platform a lot. And it's like, what does this mean? And one of the things he couldn't stand is the phrase holding space. Like Megan, stop saying that. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> and I get it. Right. Like what does holding space mean? But I think that's what it means. Like being with, and as you were saying that I realized, you know, probably my husband did something similar when the kids were like, why don't we take this crazy trip? And really what parents should have said in that moment was like, that's kind of nuts guys. Like that's. Right you know, we don't have the money for that. And we don't, and he just sort of looked at me and was like, does that sound good? And I was like, yeah, this sounds good. And then it was just a thing we were doing. And I think, I think the attunement be trying to attune, having someone who can attune to you is incredibly important in grief and loss. And also your husband's name, Angel. I mean, come on. He probably he doesn't do anything, do anything. He doesn't do anything wrong. Can you tell folks where to find you if they are interested in this? Where to pre-order the book? How to follow your sure. work? And you know, hopefully, get to a book signing and to a reading. How do, How do we do all that?
1: Absolutely. Sure. I'll give you my website first, although I will note that you have to pay attention how my last name is spelled because my ancestors were illiterate. So it's markchestnut.com, but it's M-A-R-K-C-H-E-S-N-U-T.com. So there's no T in the middle of of Chestnut, just the T, one T at the end. There's also a country music singer named Mark Chestnut with two T's at the end. So don't get confused. I don't sing. Well, I do, but you won't want to hear me. It'll Um, be great. Right. You can also follow me on Instagram, Mundera, which is a name that I made up. It's like my little brand, M-U-N-D-E-R-A. So that's easy to find me on Instagram. And if you go to the markchestnut.com site, or actually if you go to Mundera on, on my Instagram account, there's a link to my own website. And there you'll find details about the book and also links to my travel articles because I love sharing travel advice and travel tips. So people will like, you know, Email me or message me on Facebook or, or Instagram and ask me for travel advice. So feel free to do that too. And, oh, um, and then also, of course, you can find the book on, on Amazon.com and BarnesNoble.com and IndieBound, which is independent booksellers, which is good to support too. So if you just look for Prepare for Departure, Mark Chestnut on any of those platforms, you'll find it. And I guess that's it. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some book signings and appearances and readings and stuff in New York City, in Rochester, New York, in Louisville, Kentucky possibly in Chicago, Illinois, maybe San Francisco and Los Angeles at some point and maybe South Florida. So I hope to be moving around a little bit, but if anybody wants me to speak, just let me know.
0: (laughs) That's so great. So just remember everybody who's listening, I will have a couple of copies of the book. So if you, for any reason, just, you know, need someone to help you get it on my team and we'll get you a copy. I have, you know, limited numbers, but, but I've never run out of books when I'm doing this. So, so let me know what you need. Also, if you read the book and love the book, even if you're just loving the first 25 pages, go and give it all the reviews because that actually really matters. Review our podcast. If you like this conversation, go on to Apple, go into the show you know, give us five stars, say that what you loved, because it really matters getting this to ears for other listeners. And I will put in the show notes, all of the links and your Instagram, and that way you'll be able to find Mark and his book out there in the world and connect at a book signing or have him come and talk to your book group or any, you know, get some travel tips. This has been an incredibly lovely conversation. I'm really grateful to your team for reaching out. I can't wait to read your book. I'm pretty voracious about other people's memoirs. So I will do everything that I just said, which is give it all the stars and all the things. And you'll definitely hear from me because we I travel all the time, I'm going to France, South of France with my family in the summer. We travel everywhere. That's how we spend the very little bit of money we make doing these things. And any tips that I can get, I'm going to tap you for. And like, if we don't have something prepared, go see him, go buy his book. So, uh, yeah. This will be up in about two to three weeks then? Yeah, Yeah. I think two to three weeks. If you would rather me hold it and put it out when your book comes out, you can, I can
1: also do that. It just,
0: I know we have- three or four people that I've interviewed that haven't come out yet.
1: Well, thank you again, Megan. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. So we'll be in touch and I'll send you headshot. That sounds great.
0: Thanks, Mark. Take care. 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 Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.